look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to a special Super Bowl edition of the Peter King Podcast. We'll break down Super Bowl 53 with some very good guests, and we'll have some Hall of Fame talk, too. Let's run down who we're going to talk to on this program and how I'm going to explain what exactly happened for the New England Patriots to win their sixth Super Bowl title in the last 18 years. We'll talk to Mike Silver. He and I got together at halftime. He's the NFL Network correspondent, old friend of mine. We got together at halftime to discuss what in the world was going on in this 3 to nothing football game at the time. Then, post-game, I talked to Stephon Gilmore, the cornerback with the New England Patriots who had a huge interception in the fourth quarter of the game. And we will have a conversation with Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, who I talked to him afterwards in the trainer's room uh, in the Patriots locker room at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Uh, He was fairly emotional and a little bit incredulous about what the Patriots have done in his 25 years as owner of this franchise. And I'm also going to give you a little bit of of a fun bonus. At the end of this podcast, we're going to talk to Rick Gosselin, He's a longtime Dallas sports writer and a longtime Hall of Fame voter like I am. He and I sat in the seven-and-a-half-hour meeting in Atlanta where the new class was elected on Saturday. We'll give you a little bit of insight as to what exactly went down. So this is going to be a basically a discussion of what happened in a very, very intriguing football game. And I'll tell you where we're going to start. We're going to start with how the Patriots and Rams just couldn't get anything going at all, basically, for over a half. You know, they they just, nothing good came of it. But I'm also going to tell you in this podcast what exactly happened to turn the tide and to give the Patriots 10 late points to win this game. The final was New England 13 and the Rams 3 in Super Bowl 53. We're going to come back in a moment. I'm going to go through a very strange first half. Then we'll talk to Mike Silver, and then we'll get into the second half of the ball game, uh, and then we'll talk to some folks after that's over. So, in December, the Los Angeles Rams went through a little mini slump. They lost to the Chicago Bears in Chicago, and then they came home and lost to the Philadelphia Eagles. And they, they, they kind of righted the ship 
you know, with two wins over weaklings later in the year, in the last two games of the year, Arizona and San Francisco. But coming into the playoffs, nobody really knew if they were all right. Uh, and they played very well in the playoffs uh, up until Sunday Super Bowl 53. And I'll tell you what I think happened in this game and what happened clearly in the first half where the Rams just could not get any drive together. And so this is, this is sort of my thought about what, what happened in this game. I think the Patriots figured out a great way uh, to play uh, Jared Goff. And, you know, when you think about how they played him, you watched as the Patriots continually stunted and confused Jared Goff. Um, they got heavy pressure on him early, and they got pressure on him consistently during the game. And so I think what what the Patriots wanted to do is show Goff some looks that he hadn't seen before. Now, uh, Pro Football Focus does some work for me in my column uh, for NBC Sports, Football Morning in America. And one of the things that they discovered about this game, that the Patriots blitzed Jared Goff 48% of the snaps in this game, and that's the third highest rate that they have blitzed teams at this year. So it was it was interesting to see that the Patriots clearly wanted to pressure Goff early and often. So, you know, he was under pressure on an awful lot of his snaps, over 40% in this game. And so I, I think that led to Goff uh, having some pretty shaky moments early. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into this with, with Mike Silver. I mean, in my opinion, you know, Jared Goff is a very cool customer who's not going to get upset. He's not going to get blown away by how he's playing. I just haven't seen that in him. But I'm going to lead you to Mike Silver now, and, and you know, who's covered the Rams extensively this year. He's very close to golf, very close to uh, Sean McVay, the coach. So let's, let's just get in with Mike Silver and see exactly what he thinks happened in the first half of this ballgame. So we're at halftime of the Weirdo Bowl, <laughs> and I'm with Mike Silver of NFL Network, NFL.com. Mike, will you please explain what we just saw? <laughs> you know, I everything I thought was going to happen in this game has so far not happened. Uh, you know, Sean, Sean McVay is a really good offensive mind. I think we're going to see some adjustments in the second half. Bill, I, I think Josh McDaniels will make some adjustments. Wade Phillips, Bill Belichick, Brian Flores. It is a chess match. Uh, the Rams cannot get the offense untracked. Uh, I think C.J. Anderson right now is the more effective running back, and they will probably start out by trying to do what they did in New Orleans and have him move the chains. Uh, and, I, you know, Jerry Goff hasn't been seeing it well. Brady has struggled with inside pressure. Sue is playing well, and Donald, I think... You know, the best thing about Jared Goff and the Rams is that they 
have had moments of choppiness and they don't get rattled. That's his best quality. I think the best thing about Jared Goff, very, very short memory. He's like a cornerback. Exactly. You know, he doesn't care. He's not going to be, you know, he's not going to kill himself at halftime of this game. Right. So if you're the Rams, the good news is you've got a brilliant coach who can make some adjustments. Uh, it was much worse in New Orleans when it was 13 nothing. Your quarterback couldn't hear. The place was deafening. You had to throw a fake punt from your own 30, and Todd Gurley was a non-factor. Uh, this is better. It's only 3 nothing. That's the good news. The bad news is Bill Belichick seems to be, with Brian Flores, next level in the defensive game plan. Jerry Goff doesn't seem to be seeing it right right now, and Todd Gurley is not maybe totally missing an action, but does not look like Todd Gurley. Uh, you know, it, it's a really tough thing to call. I do think the NFL has a way in these moments when people just get an impression and it's going bad. It always turns good. Think of that weird Patriots-Panthers Super Bowl that we saw in Houston, the, the second one Brady won, to early 2004. Terrible first quarter. Amazing second quarter. Awful third quarter where all we talked about was Janet Jackson's boob and a streaker. And then the fourth quarter was wild and crazy. So sometimes it just takes a while for a game to get untracked and, and define itself. Uh, I'm fascinated by the coaching showdown on both sides. It really looks right now like, you know, nobody wants to make that mistake. Right. Which is going to hand the other team seven points. Patriots made a mistake. And the Rams couldn't take advantage of it. But the Patriots know? have really made multiple mistakes. Brady had There was a strip sack of Brady that David right. Andrews fell on. That could have been a disaster. They missed a field goal. Uh, they threw an interception. I believe I just saw a stat that they were in the inside the 35 four times and came away with three points. Yeah. They just stopped them on the fourth and one. Uh, conversely, if you're the Rams, you have a chance at the end to tie this game at halftime. It's second and 16. He throws the pass to Cooks. He throws it a little low. Cooks has to go down and catch it and cradle it. Now it's third and two instead of a first down. You can't call, call the timeout because you're not sure if you're going to make the first down. So you kind of rush to the line, and you don't have faith in Gurley, so you throw it, and now you punt. And so, you know, it's very little things. But, you know, you're right. You don't want to do a little thing in a game where Aaron Donald can hurt you. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to do a little thing. Uh, you know, we're seeing Patriots defenders. It's like they're running backs. They've got like five guys who are just, you know, showing out at different times. So, last thing. So, we're, we're here in the press box, and you look around, and I think everybody is really stunned by the outcome of this first half. It's the second lowest scoring first half in Super Bowl history. Wow. Three to nothing. So, you think that these coaches in this long halftime, this 33-minute halftime, right. you think these coaches are really going to come up with something, we'll see something different in the second half? They're going to have to. Uh, you know, it's uh, maybe Sean McVay is thinking, you know, we need to settle down. It's big for us. But I, 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 f I have a feeling that they're just going to put their nose to the grindstone and try to figure it out. And I believe C.J. Anderson will be a focal point of that. They get the ball first. The good news is, for the Rams, they get the ball first. The bad news is, for the Rams, they get the ball first. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Silver, NFL Network. Thanks for uh, hanging in with your, with your voice. Have you ever noticed that every year at the Super Bowl, you lose your voice? I have, Peter. <laughs> but th thanks to the magic of prednisone and resilience, uh, I'm still here kicking.
look, you got to play hurt. Football's a contact sport. And really, I have a lot of very, very important things to say at very high <laughs> volumes in loud places. So in fairness to me, I mean, what else are you going to do? Thanks to Mike Silver. We're going to be back with the second half in a minute. It's Peter King back here at the Super Bowl. You know, no one should feel unsafe at home, period. Fear has no place in a place like home. And that's been Simply Safe's mission from day one. You may have seen their commercial about it during a big game this year. If you didn't, you can find it online. Simply Safe blankets your whole home with protection. That's Simply Safe. S I M P L I. S-A-F-E. All one word. Simply safe. Around the clock professional monitoring makes sure police are on the way when you need them. The security sensors are tiny, blending in with your home so you won't notice them. The Verge calls Simply Safe the best home security, and it's a wire cutter top pick. As more than 3 million Simply Safe customers already know, it feels good to fear less. So protect your home today. You'll get free shipping on any system order. Just visit simplysafe.com slash king. I'm going to spell it one more time for you. Simplysafe. S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E. Simplysafe.com slash king. Once more. Simplysafe.com slash king to protect your home and family today. I think you're going to be happy to get Simply Safe. So back on the Peter King podcast now, we take you into the second half of the Super Bowl. And obviously at halftime, New England leads three to nothing. Uh, there's a collective shock in the press box. I can tell you I'm, I'm talking to some of my friends in the business, and and we're all sort of saying, "Man, what what's going to happen in the second half?" I mean, you know, it's totally unrealistic to think that this is going to keep going the way it is. But I think what was very interesting that happened, you know, at you know, in the middle parts of this game, is that it simply reinforced. You know, a lot of people say, well, they'll make some changes at halftime. And and obviously, you know, the the coach of the Los Angeles Rams, you know, was Sean McVay. He's a young wonder kind. And, and I think a lot of people at halftime thought, well, we'll see what, what happens in the third quarter. But the fact is, uh, the Rams and Patriots didn't do a lot different. In fact, as I write in my Football Morning in America column today at NBCSports.com, one of the big things that happened in this game was that uh, in the fourth quarter, midway through the fourth quarter, after the Patriots had had 10 drives in this game and scored three points total, it was a 3-3 three to three game, and... I, you know, I just sort of was looking at this game. Have you ever seen a game, uh, a baseball game that you think, boy, I better watch every pitch of this game because there could be a solo home run in the fourth inning that decides this. These teams are so close. 
So that's sort of what I was thinking, that, you know, it's a classic pitcher's duel uh, in baseball, and that's what we were watching here. But I'll tell you what I really think turned the tide. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. Early this morning, so as I record this Monday morning, it's about 3.40 a.m., I'm sitting in my hotel room in Atlanta, um, and as I'm recording this, I, I've just come back in the last hour or so from the Patriots team hotel. And one of the things that I did while at the Patriots team hotel is try to find out, A, why they were so frustrated against the Rams defense. And B, and I think this was this is a really important part of it. Think about this. Why in the world the New England Patriots, you know, were able to sort of flip a switch and score 10 points on two drives in the fourth quarter after being basically shut out for the first three plus quarters of this game and you know at the Patriots team party on uh, Monday morning you know I've recently come back from Dwayne Allen the reserve tight end for the for the uh, Patriots told me that Josh McDaniels the offensive coordinator went to the team mid you know midway through the fourth quarter and basically said hey we're you know, what we're doing isn't working. We're going to change this. And even though we didn't practice it this week, we are going to make this change and we think it'll work. And so they went to sort of a jumbo package. Little used tight end Dwayne Allen went in the game. And and I think they felt like James Devlin went in the game, the fullback. I think they felt like we're going to do our level best to really play a physical game and to try to out-physical uh, the Rams. So it only took them five plays to move down the field and score the first touchdown of the game. And, you know, I think it's it's very interesting that, you know, coaches often will say things like, oh, you know, mid-game adjustments are overrated, blah, blah, blah. I don't think for really smart teams they are overrated. Um, but anyway... What, what ended up happening was they scored a touchdown, the Patriots did, you know, on this five-play, 69-yard drive. Very, very well put together. And what was so interesting as this game wore on and wore on is that I kept thinking to myself, this is a game that is a lot like an old steel curtain game, or you know, with the Steelers in the 70s, or... It's a lot like uh, the kind of game that uh, that you you're used to seeing, like in the NFC North, you know, or as Chris Berman called it, the NFC Norris, you know, because there's so many, you know, it's so chippy uh, the games. But you know, it stayed uh, after they made that adjustment, Josh McDaniels. It stayed ten to, uh, ten to three. You know, and the Patriots tacked on a field goal to make it 13-3. to And so I think the coaching change is helped by Josh McDaniels. Uh, Bill Belichick very generously acknowledged all of those uh, decisions by McDaniels after the game. So uh, I want to bring you to an interception that happened. You probably saw it. Uh, the... Uh, you know, the Rams were driving to try to tie the score, and they had found 
some holes in the New England defense. And so they were moving down the field, and all of a sudden, the Patriots made a very big play. Let's go now to the New England locker room, uh, where I spoke soon after the game to hero of the moment, Stephon Gilmore. Uh, you clearly have got to know that you guys, you may be singled against Brandon Cooks. Was it zero blitz? And what exactly happened on the play that you saw? It was zero blitz. You know, I, I trust our D-line to get there. It was putting pressure on him the whole night. And, you know, I was able to keep, keep my eyes on him the whole time and I was able to make a good play. And you said after the game that that was a pretty easy interception. Yeah. yeah I mean, you didn't feel any sort of nerves, any sort of anything? I mean, we do that every day, you know. I make plays like that in practice every day. And, you know, it, it was just like practice. Just looking the ball in, trusting the teammates to get there and, and force the ball out and was able to make a great play. How fun is it for you guys to win a game, you know, like the Steelers of the 70s? You know, to win a game just all on defense? You never know how it's going to go in these games, you know. You just got to keep fighting and, you know, every Super Bowl is different. You just got to play one, one play at a time and, and play together as a team. The play before your interception where it was almost the identical throw by Goff into the cor that corner of the end zone. What were you thinking, and how did you guys break it up? You know, he kind of got me off the line a little bit, and I caught up on him, caught up, caught up with him, and Deron had a great break out of the middle of the field, and we was able to take him down at the same time. So, you know, in the Super Bowl, they got great players too, and you just got to keep fighting to the end. And what do you say about the historic nature of this team? winning six Super Bowls and going to the Super Bowl three years in a row, winning two of them? You know, it's, it's a grind every day. You know, it's, it's not easy to, to be a Patriot. You know, it's, it's hard work. It's dedication day in and day out. And, you know, even when we win games, it, it feels like we lose sometimes because, you know, it's hard. You know, we want to be perfect, and sometimes we're not perfect. But we keep believing in each other, and... You know, that's what it's about, because at the end, we're going to be in the right position to be in the Super Bowl. Is it worth it on a night like this? It's worth it. Everything is worth it. All the bumps and bruises and the sweat and blood. I mean, look at Chung. He, he went out fighting, and when you see a guy like that put his body. Chung breaks yeah. his arm today yeah. in the middle of the game. Yeah, yeah you see that, and you just want to keep fighting for your teammates. Congratulations, Stefan. Appreciate it. I'm here at Super Bowl 53, and support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want you want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog. You can launch an online store. You can create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. 
That's wix.com slash Peter King to get 10% off. You'll be glad you did. After the Gilmore interception, the Patriots added a field goal on their next series. It was a field goal they wouldn't need because the final score was 13-3. to So what are we left with now? What are we left with when we consider the Patriots and their place in history? I think one of the things that's very interesting to consider is that if you look back at what I would consider to be the two best teams of eras since the year 1960, which kind of uh, began the modern era of, foot, of pro football. If you consider those two two uh, uh, eras of football, you know, in the 60s, the Green Bay Packers were great. They won five championships in seven years, which is almost unheard of in the NFL, in NFL annals. But one of the reasons why I think it's unfair to, to compare that is that, I mean, you know, there were only 14 teams at the time. And the Green Bay Packers won five championships in seven years and didn't have any of the wins buffeting them that uh, currently buffet teams in the NFL. There was no free agency to speak of. Uh, there were only 14 teams. So clearly, if you had a smart scouting department, uh, and you had a good coach, and everybody thinks they have a good coach, but you got to look at it dispassionately and say, D- do we really have a good coach? And and I think obviously, um, you know, that's a that that's a question that anybody could answer in a hundred different ways. But when I look at this team, I mean, obviously the New England Patriots are a great, great football team, and they've got a great, great football coach. So I. I really think I would stack up the Patriots and you know you go to the Steelers in the 70s won four times in six years but same rules for them no free agency and and all that and I just think that you know now that the Patriots have won six I'm not ready to crown them the greatest team of all time but in this day and age when everything is being drawn to the middle so much um, you know in our business and the sports business so I I really can't tell you what tomorrow is going to bring. All I can tell you is that, for my money, the New England Patriots are the best team of the last 50 years. And, uh, you know, going back to the 60s. And I, I, I they might be the best team of all time, but I, I'd like a little bit more time to, to think about that. They've been good for an awful long time. So I want to take you into my conversation post-game with Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots for the last 25 years. Uh, he was eloquent and a little bit newsworthy. So uh, I think you're going to like my conversation with Robert Kraft. With Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, we're sitting in the trainer's room at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. You were soaking in your sixth Super Bowl victory in 18 years. You've been to the Super Bowl now 10 times in your 25 years as owner. 
This seemed like such a different game, though. You've played a lot of explosive offensive games. This game you had to win different. So what was it like for you to watch this, and what did you think of your team? Well, you know, this team is a different team than any of the others we've been with, but it has a certain sense of character and uh, maturity about it that I don't ever remember. And I, and I saw it the last two weeks in this locker room. There was a quiet air of confidence. They worked hard. There was a good attitude. Um, and it was focused. And I don't think we have the most Pro Bowl players on the matter of fact, how many we got one who went to the Pro Bowl. And you know, what they did in defense today was unbelievable. And that, in Kansas City. But just going back to the start of the season with all the turmoil and tension and you know, it and then I think we opened up what, two and three? Yeah. I don't remember quite having something like that. And then we did well, and then we came to December, and we lost two games in December, which we usually don't do. And because of that, we didn't have the home field advantage through the playoffs. And we had to go on the road in the championship game to a place we got beaten badly the last time we played there. And they probably have the best young team, in my opinion, of all of football. And our guys found a way to get the job done. And um, and then today, the same thing. To be honest, I was really um, ambivalent about what was going to happen, especially, you know, when we had the turnover and the missed field goal and we had driven down three times. We got one field goal, so it was 3 nothing at halftime. And... You were playing a team that could go in at halftime, make adjustments. They're a very explosive team, young team, unpredictable. And But in the end, things came through. I wish we got our turnover, not quite at the end of the game, but I felt a lot better at that point in scoring, seeing Sony score the touchdown. Uh, but I just pinched myself because, you know, I'm still a fan. And especially when I'm sitting in my box, I'm thinking as a fan and thinking back to being in the stands and dreaming about owning the team. And then the good Lord's been very kind to allow me to pursue my passion. What I thought was special about this game, when you look back on it at one point in your life, you're going to say, we won this game differently. And that is, you won this game like the 70s Steelers would win a game or the 85 Bears would win a game. That hasn't been the hallmark of your team. So in a way, that's got to be rewarding also. Well, it's a great compliment to Bill and the coaching staff that they can adapt and be flexible. And I assume what you mean by that, having a very physical game, establishing a running game and shutting down an explosive defense on offense on the other side and it was really remarkable um and a real team effort 
you know. So many players contributed. Um, and that, you know, one of the reasons I love the NFL and I'm privileged to be part of it is we're the best development plan for life. Anyone who plays football, you learn how to get along with all people. You learn if you want to win, you got to be part of a team and subjugate your ego. And I think today we really saw it. And everyone thinks the quarterbacks are always the MVPs. Well, a very rugged, disciplined guy who runs great routes, holds on to the ball, and made a difference when we needed it is the one who is the MVP. And, and that'll change every week in our different games. And that's the beauty of this and the reason communities rally behind the teams and the communities. And I think in today's world that we're living in, we uniquely bring people together and build bridges in a way that isn't done enough. So from my point of view, to be the custodian of this asset, which really is an asset of public trust, is pretty special. Robert, I also wondered, you're a, you're a New Englander. You go to all the games. You love sports. You love all the teams. And now that you guys have been to nine Super Bowls in 18 years, which is unheard of in NFL history, how do you rate what you guys have done versus some of the great franchises in the history of, of your city? Well, I'm going to let you rate that. The only one that I really remember growing up was the Celtics, and I was a big fan. You know, Bob Cousy, Bill Sharman, Bill Russell, uh, Luskatov, Heinsohn, you know, Ramsey. It was, they really had a certain sustain, sustained success. I don't know how many teams were in the NBA, whether they had anywhere near the 32 teams we had. And, you know, the Red Sox, until the turn of the century, we uh, suffered um, a lot. And the Bruins had brief periods in the Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito. And, you know, the Patriots never sold out, let alone didn't win anything. I mean, one last thing. You had a moment with Tom Brady on the field after the game. You're as close as an owner and quarterback can be. What was that like? It was so special because knowing all the things we've gone through together over the last few years and how we've remained a unit and not let anyone break it down has been pretty special. Robert Kraft, congratulations. You've, you've done something that no one thought was possible in the NFL. Well, I honestly don't believe what our team and Tommy and Bill have done will ever be replicated in the age of the salary cap. Thank you. This is Peter King for Sonos Beam at Super Bowl 53. Can I tell you about my new favorite thing at home? It's my new Sonos Beam. Now, Sonos Beam is the smart, compact soundbar for my TV, and it's the newest addition to my home sound system. It plays everything I love. 
There's so much to enjoy. Sonos supports over 100 streaming services. I can even use AirPlay to enjoy music and my favorite shows from my iPhone or iPad. Not only does it have all of the streaming I need, but wait till you listen. The sound is brilliant. It's crystal clear. Using my Beam fills my living room with such great sound. I can enjoy detailed stereo separation for music, plus crystal clear dialogue for TV, movies, and all of the podcasts that I love so much. And I can't believe how easy it was to set up. Start to finish, I'm telling you, 12 minutes. No crazy wiring. Beam connected to my TV with just one cord, and it syncs with my remote. Even better was that the Sonos app made it so easy to set up. And here was something I wasn't expecting. Amazon Alexa's built in. I get all the benefits of having Alexa, and now I even have hands-free control of my music. I can use my voice to turn the TV on or off and to adjust the volume. How great is that? So get your Sonos today. Don't wait. Don't you want to listen to music in one room, a podcast in another, or send sound from your TV everywhere so you never miss a second of the action? Create the ultimate entertainment center with your Beam. Sonos Beam. Go online to get yours today. So pretty strong words at the end, and I think pretty correct words at the end. So that sort of concludes our uh, Super Bowl uh, part of this podcast. But I want to introduce you to Rick Gosselin. He's a longtime pro football writer who's so terrific in knowing all of, uh, you know, all the people who've made the Hall of Fame, who hasn't made the Hall of Fame, what the margin has been. So I think we're going to spend a little bit of time, you know, with Rick in this talk, asking him, you know, basically about what happened on Saturday in the meeting, in the Hall of Fame meeting, and also I think what what's the what's the future of a lot of things at the Hall of Fame and and a lot of things about the positions that you know get sort of special treatment by the Hall of Fame. But anyway, Rick Gosselin's very good. He's a good friend of mine. I think you're gonna, you're going to enjoy my conversation with Rick Gosselin. Back on the Peter King Podcast, special Super Bowl edition. You know, every year, Super Bowl week, um, the 48-member selection committee for the Pro Football Hall of Fame gathers the day before the Super Bowl in the city where the game is being played at 7 a.m. and commences a meeting to uh, elect that year's class for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, there's nobody on the committee, the 48 members, who I respect more than Rick Gosselin from Dallas, longtime NFL uh, writer and uh, sort of a, I'd call the unofficial statistician. Anytime I have a question about anything relative <laughs> to the Hall of Fame, uh, I always talk to Rick. Uh, so I thought that on this podcast, since many of you are Hall of Fame uh, fanatics, um, I thought I would talk to Rick a little bit about what this year meant and uh, what he found significant about it. So anyway, Rick, welcome. Peter, always glad to be here. Good. Always glad. So um, 
I'll tell you the thing I found that was most interesting. We're here in the uh, press box of the Super Bowl, so we may get a little bit of ambient noise. So the thing I found interesting this year is the emphasis on the defensive backfield. You know, there are eight people selected. Uh, Four of them are defensive backs. It's the first time in Hall of Fame history that there have been that many um, uh, uh, defensive backs selected. And this year, obviously, Johnny Robinson, the senior committee uh, nominee, Kansas City Chiefs, uh, uh, Pro Bowl uh, safety from the 60s. Uh, then Ed Reed, obviously the Baltimore Ravens, and then two corners, Ty Law of the Patriots and Champ Bailey, uh, who played ha- uh, some of his career in Washington, but most in Denver. So I guess I'll start off by asking you, why do you think that we're doing better, I'd say, in the last few years on defensive backs than we have? I think there's not a greater awareness. You know, we've been pounding the drum for years about the imbalance, the voting imbalance. There are 60% of everybody, every player in Canton, modern era, played offense. 40% played defense. Uh, I think when it's all said and done, you close doors on the hall, the numbers have to add up. Right now, they haven't been adding up. But I remember classes back in the 80s and 90s where you had six offensive guys and one defensive guy and five and two, and it was just getting so out of whack. But a number of us have been pounding the drum. Look, we have to acknowledge these defensive guys. You look at the four defensive backs you put in. These guys combined for 226 interceptions. Wow. These were great choices. And that's what people don't understand. It is such a tough call. We had 12 all-decade players in the room. And we had to tell seven of them that it's not your time yet. We're leaving Hall of Fame players behind to enshrine this class of five. That's been the problem for the longest time with this committee. We have too many qualified candidates and too few seats. You know, yesterday I went in there and uh, I always, at the start of every, uh, at the every, at the start of every selection period, I put little dots next to the guys who I think will be like the final five of the modern era candidates. Right. I've only been right twice. Last time I was right was the Parcells year a few years ago, but. I almost always miss, and I probably would have missed yesterday, uh, Saturday, because I would not have had Kevin Mawai. Now, having said that, I love the pick of Kevin Mawai. Right. Um, and, and, and I wonder, why do you think that it has been so difficult to sort of thin the herd? Do you think there are just simply too many candidates for the amount of space we have? Well, in, in offensive line in particular, I think we've been down the road with wide receivers and pass rushers. You've got four qualified candidates. You have four different camps in that room. They're all going to vote for their guy, and they end up knocking each other out. And I think we... we Let, let's go over the four. Tony Baselli, <laughs> Steve Hutchinson, Alan Kevin Fan- Mawai, and mm-hmm. Alan Fanica. And all of them are all decade players. They're all deserving candidates. But each of the last two years, we've discussed uh, these four candidates, and we, none, none of them got to the five. We had to break the logjam, get one of them in. This is what we do with Chris Carter, the wide receivers. Once we got Chris Carter in, then we knocked off two or three wide receivers right after that in successful classes. We needed to get an offensive lineman through. I, I thought going into the room, I thought there'd be three first ballot guys. I thought there'd be an offensive lineman and a wild card. And, and the offensive lineman, of course, was Mawai, and the wild card was Ty Law. Ty Law, yeah. What did you think of this class? I loved it. Again, anytime there's more defensive players in offense, I love it. Johnny Robinson should have been in 30 years ago. I thought uh, Jason Taylor got Ty Law spot a few years back. Uh, Tony Gonzalez, how are you going to keep him out? And Kevin Mawai, first team all decade. He's every first team all decade center has been enshrined until Kevin Mawai. Now Mawai's in. So we've cleaned up a lot of business here with this class. How do you deal with the 
what I would call consistent stream of negativity from the outside world that says, in essence, oh, you idiot, you didn't put Tom Flores in, or, or, or whoever it is. Does it ever bother you? No, I, I tell people, everybody has a one-player agenda, and we have, on that day, a 15- and 18-player agenda, or 18-person agenda, and those of us on the senior contributor committees, we've got about an 80-player agenda. So we have to thin the herd, and no matter who we pick, it's the wrong guy. Like I said, there are 12 all-decade players in this group. We could have taken any five, any a group of five, and it would have been a great class. But they're going to focus on the guys that didn't get in and say, you know, they'd forget the fact that Tony Gonzalez and Ty Law and Champ Bailey all belonged. It's, why didn't you get Baselli in? Why didn't you get Edgerton James And They always want to pick the one guy. Everybody has a one-player agenda except us. How do you stand on the concept um, of... I, I don't know if you'd call it a sort of a cleanup class. A lot of people have talked fairly openly about the prospect of maybe trying to get a bunch of the senior committee guys in. Because, look, you deal with that every single year. You look at this incredible number of really good players uh, who, j for one reason or the other, are not in. So what do you think of, of the concept of doing sort of a large sort of cleanup of a lot of these guys who have not gotten in. I've liked it, and I've, I've pushed it with uh, the Hall of Fame people. The senior pool, right now I've got 80 all-decade players in the senior pool, and we get to bring out one or two at a time. Right now there are eight first-team all-decade players in the senior pool. If you're a first-team all-decade, that is a rubber stamp. You're going to Canton. There's eight of them in the senior pool, and most of them have never even been discussed. What did those, that eight do to tick off the board that they w wouldn't be discussed and wouldn't be put in. So if, if we get this amnesty class or the centennial class, the Hall likes to call it, and we, they give us 10 or 15 spots, I think that will go a long way toward breaking the log jam of seniors. And still, if we took a top 15 out, we still have 65 all-decade players in the senior pool, of which we bring out one and two a year. It's just the, the river doesn't run fast enough. You are one of these guys who, who does a lot of studying both of the numbers and of the guys who aren't in who you believe should be in. Right. Who are the next level three to five guys who, in your opinion, of seniors? really seniors who need to be discussed, who you feel like really need to be in? Kenny Anderson's best quarterback, not in the Hall of Fame. Kenny Anderson should be discussed. Alex Karras was a first-team all-decade player, uh, all-decade defensive tackle in the 60s. The other two, Merlin Olsen, Bob Lilly, were first ballot. Karras, Karras has never been in the room. Uh, Al Wistert, an offensive tackle, played in the Philadelphia Championship teams of the, of the 40s. First-team all-deck guy. Hasn't been in. Ken Rarely, second all-time among cornerbacks, pure corners and interceptions. Never been discussed. 65 interceptions. How do you, if you intercept 65 passes, how are you never discussed? So those, those are, are, are probably the group. Um, there, there's a ton of offensive linemen. Um, Ed White, uh, the great uh, guard from, from San Diego and the Vikings. They're just... Again. Advise me on my two pet guys, Joe Klecko and Cliff Branch. Klecko, I'm surprised we haven't discussed Klecko to this point. Uh, one of the just for everybody who doesn't know, yeah. Joe Klecko, I believe, is the only player in NFL history to have made the Pro Bowl at three different positions: defensive end, defensive tackle, and nose tackle. Yeah, I think Joe is, his name is turned up 
recently in, in, the, in the, the grouping of players we're discussing for the seniors, and his time may be coming. The Cliff Branch issue, I think the one issue that I've got is that there, right now there are 11 Raiders and a coach from the 70s in the Hall of Fame. Right. And that team went to one Super Bowl. The Steelers won four Super Bowls and have nine players in. So you want to put a 12th Raider in? I mean, why, why didn't the Raiders win four and the Steelers win <laughs> one? So I think standalone candidate, Cliff Branch is a Hall of Famer. Ken Stable is a Hall of Famer. Ray Guy was a Hall of Famer. But collectively, how can you put 12 guys in from one team that went to one Super Bowl in a decade? Last question for you. As you sort of look at the Hall right now, if, if, if I gave you a magic wand to make one sort of either rules change or one thing that you think could make either the voting process better or make the hall better, what do you think you'd do? I think I would have the hall put together a blue ribbon panel to produce the slate of finalists. Because right now, it's become, with the, with the demise of newspapers, the voting board has gotten so young, and there are a lot of people started covering football in the 1990s and 2000 decade. They don't remember the 80s 49ers, 70s Steelers, the 60s Packers. I'd have a blue ribbon panel, get, get the best football, get, get Parcells, get Ron, Ron Wolf, get all the good football, and give us the slate, and then let this committee vote on that slate. They may have a guy from the 50s. Give us the 15 best guys not in Canton, not the 15 most recent guys. I like that thought. Rick Gosselin, thanks a lot. Uh, should be a fun Super Bowl. Really appreciate you taking the time. Always my pleasure, Peter. Thanks to my guests, Mike Silver of NFL Network, Stefan Gilmore of the New England Patriots, Patriots owner Robert Kraft, and longtime and trusted Dallas sports writer and Hall of Fame maven Rick Gosselin. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for burning the midnight oil in their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Simply Safe, Wix, and Sonos. I'll see you again next week.